Hello and welcome to another edition of Shout to the Top here on NLive Radio. I'm your host, Nick Petford, and today we're talking Northamptonshire sport with Kelvin Thomas, John White and Gavin Warren, chairman of the Cobblers, the Saints and the Steelbacks. We've also got updates from Stuart Pringle on Silverstone and F1, plus all things skateboarding and BMX with Mandy Young from Adrenaline Alley. We'll also take a peek at sports broadcasting with BAFTA award-winning Paul McNamara from ITV and our very own award-winning sports journalist Kate Williams. So sit back with a glass of something cool as we shout to the top, all washed down with a favourite song or two. Northampton Zone 106.9 N Live. Well, hello and welcome to Shout to the Top. I'm Nick Petford and my first guest this evening is Kelvin Thomas, uh, the chairman of Northampton Town Football Club. Kelvin took over at Oxford United in 2008 with the club on the brink of administration and appointing Chris Wilder, um, most recently of Sheffield, uh, as a manager, guiding the youths back to the Football League in 2010. Kelvin had an advisory role at conference club Torquay United before moving to Northampton Town in 2015, taking on a club which was facing a wind-up petition uh, and also during a £10 loan repayment scandal, not of his making, I should say. Um, aside from football, Kelvin is the co-owner of and director of Radio Customs, a multi-channel internet radio platform, and director of uh, Shack Foo Radio and Muddy Country Radio, both internet radio stations, just like NLive. Well, welcome to the show, Kelvin. Great to have you here, I guess, live from Florida. Yeah, I am. I'm uh, looking out of the sunshine right now, to be honest. <laughs> it's a tough life, isn't it? A tough life. How's, how's the COVID situation there, just briefly? Um, it's, uh, it's, it's definitely different to a lot of places in the world. Um, the governor here made a decision quite relatively early on that lockdown wasn't the way to go and, uh, the state remained open and, um, and it's been, I think he's been vindicated somewhat in that decision because the numbers at Florida have been definitely comparable to a lot of most other states, especially some of the lockdown states. So, so we've been pretty free most of this time. Um, so it's definitely an interesting approach. Definitely. Well, look, long, long may it last. Um, so, Kelvin, a lot of background in your biography about radio. We'll talk about that a little bit later. But first of all, a cobbler's update. I mean, Keith Curl went, I think, end of February. There's about 10 games left, including AFC Wimbledon this Saturday. And I should say that we're recording this on March the 23rd before that game. You've put your trust in John Brady and his team until the end of season. Kelvin, how do you see it panning out? It's a big 10 games, that's for sure. Um, we've certainly, I think John, we've certainly seen improvements in, in performance with John and um, we've covered a couple of great results, notably Portsmouth. Um, uh, disappointing Saturday, I think we'd all say that against Crew. I think, you know, it summed up our season in, 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 in 90 seconds where we go down and have a good, really good chance, miss it, 75th minute, and then they run down the other end and score a goal that should have been stopped. Um, so... Um, it's now, you know, we, the pretty basic formula right now. You've got to probably win four or five games out of the ten to, to get, get to possibly get yourself out of trouble. Well, let's hope it uh, hope it works out. I mean, it's never a good place to be down that towards the bottom of the table, but there's still hope, and I think uh, definitely the Cobblers uh, can pull it round. I mean, when you arrived, you inherited a challenging financial. Well, it was a scandal, wasn't it, surrounding the previous club owners, and hopefully most of that is now history. But is there any kind of long term? ramifications or impact on the club of that period financially no uh, yep. financially we're very well separated from it i think the uh, the biggest overhang with overhang we've experienced is in terms of trying to get something done with a council 
Um, obviously, Northampton Borough Council were very involved in, in the loan because they gave the loan and probably will regret some of the decisions that they made. Uh, and I think that's made it very challenging for David and myself to, to try and uh, do a deal with the council on, on, on the development. It's a completely different situation is we haven't asked for any money. We're not looking for loans. We're actually looking to give the council money. So, but I think understandably somewhat, uh, the KPMG report just came out, which was very critical of both the previous owners and the council in their dealings. So, you know, they're once bitten, twice shy and all that. So, you know, but we're looking forward with West North Ants now that NBC is, is no longer in about a week is no longer and uh, we're looking forward to making progress, continue progress with West North fans. Yeah, that's a good approach. I mean, if you think about the town, we've got you know, cricket, we've got um, premiership rugby, we've got soccer. It's quite unusual actually for an English town this size to have those three sporting uh, facilities pretty much cheek and jowl. And I do wonder sometimes whether, you know, the, the powers that be locally give enough credence or support necessarily to sport. Um, well, we'll see how the new unitaries pan out in that respect. So University of Northampton, I mean, we've been a proud sponsor of the club uh, since, I think, 2012. And some people may think it's a bit odd that an educational, educational establishment like a university is a main sponsor. So, Kelvin, what are the benefits to the club and, and what do you think the university gains from it? When you say odd, I think it's not as common as you would think. There are some uh, clubs that are, have that sponsor, but I think every club has a very good relationship, tend to have a good relationship with their local university. We are, there's so much, so much synergy between a, a football club and a, and a university in terms, in, in, in all kinds of areas. And especially for us from an education standpoint, there's a, there's a big focus from us from a, from a club perspective on education. And that's all, all stages of education through primary school all the way up to university with yourself. So there's a path, there's an education pathway all the way through the club. So that's, that's very important for us. And I think for, you know, yourselves, I think profile is one. It does entertain me sometimes and you do smile when, when, when you get told from, admit, from some of your admissions office that, that, that some of the comments on applications are, we've, we saw you on FIFA. Yeah, um, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Especially from international students. And uh, so I think that helps. And, uh, and I think just the, you know, the, we do the takeover days where there's a lot of work experience opportunities and, and actually job opportunities. So I think we've now got three members of our staff, our full-time staff of uh, uh, former students of the university. Um, so those kind of things I think are really positive and that, that relationship and that synergy is, is excellent. I absolutely agree. And on the sort of theme of younger people, we've got the academy, the younger players, both male and female, I should say, the, the, the women's team are doing pretty well at the moment. All a key part of the future is being a sustainable League One club, uh, along with a minimum level of investment. So, Kelvin, how are the directors looking at this in a, I don't know, a more strategic way? Yeah, no, we are. We are. We have taken a view um, about that and over the next sort of some of it's going to depend on how the next 10 games go but we are having some discussions about you know the next stages and what makes sense and what doesn't make sense and and how how do we how do we do that and and I think there will be a, an overall reorganization of football finances over the next couple of years as well uh, because the football finance world is is very top heavy with the Premier League and we, I think there needs to be a, a redistribution, and and even though Project Big Picture was 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 hammered media wise and and fan wise to a degree, 
that was based around, I think, 10% of the, the proposal, where 90% of the proposal was actually incredibly positive, especially for a club like Northampton Town. So I think what we needed to really do was was accept the, 10, the 90% and, and try and negotiate a better position on the 10%. But I think there'll be some more conversation about that. And then we've got to do some more in terms of looking at the longer-term picture, young players, how do we... How do, how do we improve the players that we're, we're, we're bringing through, et cetera, et cetera? Welcome back to Shout to the Top. I'm Nick Petford and I'm talking to Kelvin Thomas, chairman of Northampton Town Football Club. Kelvin, you're involved in the US sport and the National Basketball Association through your long relationship with Shaka O'Neal, legendary NBA player um, who, in a, actually in a link back to last month's show on policing, is also an honorary US Marshal. How about that? So football slash soccer is now very popular and gaining popularity in the United States. So Kelvin, my question is, does this open up new opportunities for English teams in the US? And I'm not just talking here about the premiership teams. Um, I think it does. I think, I think overall there is a, a definitely a, a big focus on soccer as they like to call it over here but you know a lot in football and there's definitely the MLS league I think in fairness I think a lot of the Premier League sides tried to to break into America heavily and have, have made tremendous inroads but I think the, the 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 U.S. culture in a way likes to see the U.S. do well and therefore there's a there's been a big push for the MLS clubs to protect their sort of territories as well and um, the major league soccer here, which is the which is the American League, uh, and some of those clubs are you know are big. You've got Beckham's franchise in Miami. You've got the the Austin franchise. You've got the Atlanta franchise. Or you know all these franchises have gone from strength to strength, and some of them are getting some very good crowds. Like you know I think Seattle's gets like an average of thirty five forty thousand a a game. So so I think there's there's there, there is a there is some opportunity still for for English uh, English clubs over here for sure and, and especially on on the um, on the in, into the youth and the academy sort of structures it's actually quite difficult to get an American player into the UK visa wise and immigration wise so there's been whilst there has been American players come across you tend to find them as national team players and unfortunately at Northampton we we would struggle to, to, to attract a, one of the US national team players, even in the youth age group. So it's um, there's definitely opportunity here and it's definitely growing here, um, but it's also growing for itself as well here. So it'll be an interesting dynamic over the next sort of 10, 15 years. Radio, right? So you've got a long-standing interest in radio. So it's great that you can talk to us here on NLive, which is a, a community-based station in Northampton. But Kelvin, how did you get from radio into football club ownership? It was actually the other way around originally. I was probably involved in football before I was involved in radio when I was when I had this, uh, my time at Oxford. Um, but the radio has been been a lot of fun. I, I really enjoy the the space. You know, it's it's, it's moved. It's definitely moving. Radio's definitely moved into the sort of online podcast world, and we have a we have a very popular group of podcasts called the Podcast Podcast Playground that we do quite a lot with. And uh, Gentry, the guy that runs that, is, has done exceptionally well and getting some really, really good podcasts. Um, and his own podcast itself is is very well listened to. But and and the relationship with Shaquille has been it's been fun. It's been a lot of lot of fun. He's a he's a real fun guy, and uh, he loves he loves his the genre. He loves his um, hip hop and rap and and music, and and he loves the Shaq Free Radio Station and and his involvement in that. 
Um, so that's been that's been a good that that's that has been fun and 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 it's got it's gone well. It's it's a it's a really interesting space now, and uh, there's a lot of interest in that podcast sort of delivering content, you know, via the internet. Yeah, I mean, I think about how podcasts have taken off. It's I mean, this show will be podcast, but uh, Peter Crouch's podcast, for instance, it's uh, it's been a great success. So I think it's good that radio's almost almost if you like because of COVID or maybe COVID helped to propel it back more into the mainstream. Um, so great, it's good for both of us, isn't it? On the different sides of, yeah, of really. the Atlantic. I'm a bit background and 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 I think now it's come back into the forefront a little bit. Definitely. Well, look, Kevin, let's finish with a bit about your background. I mean, you grew up in Sydenham in South London, but you support West Ham, right? Surely you should be a Crystal Palace fan. I should. I should be by geographical location, except uh, my parents were both brought up in the East End of uh, London. And um, I used to go every sort of weekend to my nan's in Canning Town. So and then my first real football memory was was watching the 1980 Cup final at my nan's house, uh, and uh, which is obviously when West Trevor Brooking scored the fantastic header to beat Arsenal one nil. Um, and uh, my dad gave me half a Guinness. Don't get him <laughs> in trouble, but he gave me half a Guinness, for, and I was eight. Um, well, I remember this very well. And then the next day we went down to. We walked down to the, the old bowling and um, watched them with the open top bus tour, bring the cup back. So that kind of ingrained me into being a, a West Ham fan. And then, it's, and then it's been up and I would say it's been up and down, a lot of downs uh, ever since, really. Well, West Ham is doing all right at the moment. I mean, they're, they're, they're holding their, their own definitely in the, in the Premiership. But of course, West Ham famous for one of the most iconic songs in football. Kelvin, let's hear a little clip of it. Oh, just, sorry, mate. I don't know what happened there. <laughs> I must have pressed the wrong button. Um, anyway, where were we? Oh, West Ham. That's right. Yeah, West Ham. Yeah. So, Kelvin, the next song is yours. Can you tell us what it is and, and why you chose it? Yeah, it's uh, Champagne Supernova, Oasis. Uh, it's obviously a classic song, but it does. It reminds me a lot of college days and uh, my best mate or best man, really, each other's weddings. Uh, always used to sing it after a night out and everyone used to join in and it, you know just a real positive song and um always just reminds me of those times and just good times really and you can always throw that song on and no matter how how you're feeling or what's going on in the world you could it'll always sort of bring you back to where you need to be brilliant well thank you kelvin thanks so much for the interview and uh best of luck to the cobblers for for the rest of the season and hopefully i'll see you down at sixfield soon cheers yeah thanks for having me on cheers well, welcome back to Shout to the Top. I'm Nick Petford, and it's a pleasure to introduce Gavin Warren, the chairman of Northamptonshire County Cricket Club. Now, Gavin is a chartered management accountant and a property development consultant. He's also worked as a senior executive for a subsidiary of Balfour Beaton. Uh, he went to Road Comprehensive in Northamptonshire, and in his spare time, Gavin's interests centre mainly around family and sport. Well, Gavin, good to have you here on Shout to the Top. I mean, you've been a great advocate for sport in Northamptonshire. And although COVID's put a giant spanner in the works, I know the Steelbacks are looking forward to welcoming supporters back to the county ground in 2021. So, Gavin, how would you see the season panning out, recognising there may be times where crowd numbers are restricted or matches are played behind closed doors? Yeah, hi, Nick. Um, good to be with you. Um, and, um, and thanks for having me on. Yeah, interesting, because we're, we're actually now following the sort of government's roadmap um, that they published a couple of weeks ago um, and, and the first sort of 
good news for me and the club is that 29th of March, we can get back to grassroots cricket. So boys and girls uh, can be back playing again um, in their clubs um, in, a, in a sort of safe um, manner. But um, massive one uh, for us because of the sort of mental, mental, physical and well-being of the kids. Um, from a professional level, we've been training um, since the start of the year. Uh, and we kick off the season on the 8th of April and um, government sort of indicate the 17th of May, subject to us uh, operating in a safe, controlled manner um, and working with the ECB, who, who working closely with government, we can, um, we can host crowds again, which is great. So the, the game against Lancashire on the 20th, 20th of May, um, we're hoping to have a crowd. Um, what those numbers look like at the minute is a bit unknown because... It's the, um, it, I, I call it the safe controlled manner. So it's what we have to put on to, to dictate numbers. Um, and thereafter, we're going to have four T20s that will be, you know, crowds. And then from the 21st of June, uh, Magic Monday, uh, I'm going to call it um, full houses. So we've got two T20s where we'll be able to host uh, full, full crowds back at Wantage Road, which, which is great. You know, a full house at Wantage Road uh, on, on a sunny uh, evening watching cricket is no better place, Nick. So yeah, looking forward to it. That's Gavin. Well, you and I have spent a few uh, a few hours ourselves, haven't we, watching uh, watching the games in the T20. I'm really looking forward to that that happening again. And also, what you said about the grassroots stuff. I mean, that's so important for all the sports, isn't it? Across Northamptonshire, football, rugby, uh, BMX, whatever it happens to be, getting the youth back uh, out of their bedrooms and you know, out into the fresh air and enjoying life again is so important, isn't it? I think you. I think you're right, Nick. I'm. I'm not a gamer. Uh, I've always kicked a ball about on the street, or, or, or had a cricket ball, uh, thrown a bat and a ball about here, there, and everywhere. So for me, you know, personally, it was so important. I mean, I think parents have uh, done really well and been very patient, especially with the youngsters. You know, homeschooling, and it, and it's been difficult for parents as as well as the kids. But you know, uh, I'm I'm 53. And it's the teenagers uh, and the youngsters I've really felt sorry for during this pandemic because they've not been able to get out, express themselves, let the steam off, play their sport. Um, you know, we saw some great rugby uh, over the weekend and, you know, you, you watch a game. We saw a great T20 yesterday, England, India. And the first thing you want to do after you see a game, get out there and play. Absolutely right. And it's good. So it's great to hear that the timeline that you've got for getting things back up and running again. What didn't run so well, of course, was England uh, in India last month. But you do have, we do have some of the world's finest international cricketers on show at the, the county ground this summer, uh, as, as you welcome India and India A ahead of the Test Series against England in August. So that sounds really exciting. Can you tell us a bit more about what we can expect? Yeah, I think um, hosting a game like England, India versus India A is, is, is massive for the cricket club, but um, it's also big for the town, Nick, for, for Northampton to host a fixture such as this, um, a, a sport of cricket is hosted in India, which is followed in the billions, is it, magic because um, it benefits restaurants, bars, news agents, shops all around the surrounding town. So it, it's great. It's great for the town and, you know, we're privileged to have them. And um, we'll be working hard with BCCI and ECB to make sure that they're well looked after um, and they get some good practice in, but um, hopefully not too much practice. So England can just sneak a victory over the Test Series, isn't it? <laughs> That's your prediction, is it? Then we can pull it back uh, in, in England? Yeah, I think we'll definitely beat them in, in England. Um, I'm pretty confident about that. They're different pitches. Um, yeah. we, we saw the sort of pitches that were 
were, were, were in India turning pitches um, and they've got some world-class players. But uh, I think we're in for a magic, magic um, test series against um, India, as we will be against New Zealand. We've got the, you know, we've got number one and number two yep. um, countries coming. So, and we're hosting that in England as well at the GS Bowl, which is great. So there's a lot of cricket um, happening in the, in the summer and, and cricket really hits, hits the sweet spot of the summer. We're just coming out of COVID. We're just coming out of sort of lockdown. So really cricket's got a big role to play, I think, um, in the summer sport, um, entertaining the, in, entertaining the, um, the patient people of, um, of England. New signings. So you've got South African Wayne Parnell for the entirety, I think, of 2020, the 2021 season. So, Gavin, what are your hopes for 2021 and any predictions for how the Steelbacks will do? Yeah, we're very cl- pleased to get Wayne. Um, Wayne's with us um, all, all season, like you say, Nick. He can play all three formats and, and will start on the on the 8th of April um, and, and, and will arrive after his quarantine from South Africa to join us. Um, we, we've also signed the number one T20 player in the world in Mohamed Nabi. So uh, over overseas-wise, I think um, Rips and the, and the team have, put, um, have, have purchased well overseas uh, in Wayne and Mohamed. The squad is probably... Probably as good as I've seen for a long while, Nick, in fairness. It's a strong squad. It's got a mix of youth um, and experience. And uh, I'm just pleased I don't pick the team, Nick, because uh, <laughs> I wouldn't want to pick uh, 11 or 12 boys from them because somebody's going to be disappointed and I could uh, justify a reason why everybody should be playing. Uh, and, and look, we'll, we'll do what we did last year. We'll look to play the youngsters um, and blood them in the championship. Um, and we've got some talented players there. We'd look to progress to the next round of that um, because it's in the divisional system, um, conference system next year. The T20, we'd be very, very disappointed if we don't get to quarterfinals day. And then if we get to quarterfinals day, we always think um, we've got a chance to get in finals day. So, so, so that's what we're thinking there. And then the 50 over competition, again, to the knockout stages, because when you get to knockout stages, um, we always back ourselves. Um, so last year we were quarter finalists. Uh, I felt just short at Gloucestershire, but this year uh, we just hope we can go one step further. And with Mohammed Nabi and and Wayne in the T20, I think we've got a great chance of that. I think we're all obviously all wishing you well in in the coming season. Just to, to kind of wrap up, how, what about yourself? How have you how have you been keeping yourself busy, uh, Gavin, during lockdown? Yeah, it's interesting, it because um, I, I felt as busy as ever, if not busier. But I've um, I've got an allotment now. Oh, yes. <laughs> I've got an allotment nice. in my garden, and um, be honest with you, I've got some good produce from that over over the uh, over the summer last year. So I'm getting ready to plant that. <laughs> so and, you've got second, um, second career as a market trader, have you? Uh, incredible, yeah. But the trouble is, I've realised that you grow too many radish, too many lettuce, and at the same time, and then you end up giving it all the way to your neighbours, <laughs> which which is great. Um, and also cooking. I've started cooking with my son, wow. and uh, it, it's quite good fun. But um, in fairness, I, I wouldn't have thought I, I would say the only thing in lockdown that's really affected me is he's probably seen your mates, really, yeah. and seeing, um, you, you know, your son sports fixtures um, and other parents and, and your mates and the pub and bits and bobs like that, really, and, and, and family, really. That's what you've really missed. And that's what I've really missed. But um, look, I always say there's a lot more people worse off than me, Nick. And, um, you know, cricket is a patience game and, you know, I think the country's been patient and hopefully um, we get back to some sort of normality after the 21st of June and um, yeah, everybody can start seeing each other again and um, supporting each other as well, Nick, because uh, 
it's mentally going to be tough for people. So um, let's let's all stick together because I think we've got a good chance of doing that. Absolutely right. It's really well said, captured it perfectly. And of course, looking forward to a glorious cricketing summer uh, and perhaps a, a half a lemonade with you, sir, up on the T20 balcony sometime over the summer. Uh, Gavin, it's been absolutely brilliant to chat to you. Thank you so much indeed. Good luck for the future. Appreciate it, Nick. And um, yeah, look forward to buying your half for sure. My <laughs> round. You heard that, listeners. Thank you, mate. Speak soon. And I should end by saying that while we hope all sporting fixtures will take place as advertised, uh, please check the website of the club for regular updates, as unfortunately nothing is 100% certain right now. Well, welcome to Shout to the Top. Uh, And now we have John White as our next guest. John is Northamptonshire born and bred. He went to Kettering Grammar School. His first job was an apprentice bricklayer. He spent all his working career in the house building industry and was chief executive and group chairman of Persimmon PLC for 18 years. 2013 to 2017, he was chairman of McCarthy and Stone, which is the largest retirement homes business in the UK. And from 2017 onwards, chairman of national house builder Miller Homes. John was appointed to the Saints board in 2012 and became chairman in 2017. John, welcome to Shout to the Top. Oh, it's great to be here, Nick. I hope you're all well that end uh, through these difficult times. But no, it's great. Great to have a chance to chat to you about Saints. Brilliant. Thank you, John. I mean, not only are you, are you a lifetime supporter of the Saints, you had a brief period as a player until injury put an end to it. Come on, you've got to tell us about that. Well, yes, it's a bit of a story, really, but um, it's been quite a while ago, of course. But uh, yeah, I played a lot of my uh, rugby at a local club, Kettering, uh, for a number of years. And I did seem to do quite well, so so I finished up having a season at Northampton Saints. It was a mixed season in so far as I had to make my way there and I eventually got to play for the Saints first team. I played for the Wanderers several times, uh, went away. In those days, we played uh, the universities, Cambridge University we played and Oxford University, but it was at Cambridge University. I remember it well because I got injured in that game, badly injured, smashed my knee never ever played again other than trying two or three comebacks and so uh that was a bit of a sad ending to my career you know to uh, at, the, at the pinnacle of my career to be chopped off at the knees as you would say but um you know i look back on it it was a major disappointment at the time i, I my life was about rugby i was young with but married with a young child but i put all my effort into what those days was an amateur game, but it certainly felt professional training uh, at least twice a week, Tuesdays and Thursdays. And so everything I poured in, I was working as a bricklayer at the time. And, uh, and of course, it all came to an end. But what it did was actually refocus my life. And I got into business and um, worked my way through that system. So I committed, having been committed to rugby and sport, I changed my emphasis to career and trying to earn a bit more money for my family. And um, as you've mentioned, I finished up, well, I'm chairman of a very big house builder at the minute and my my career took off after a lot of hard work and, and refocusing. And so whilst I would have loved to carry on playing rugby for two or three more years, I would still swap that now actually. Well, you've had a very successful career in house building. And I guess these twists and turns in life, you sort of refocus from one direction into another. 
Um, and you end up, of course, being the chairman of the club that you love. John, you sent out a letter about a year ago explaining how the club's position was to be managed through, through the COVID. Clearly, a lot has happened since then. But what are your thoughts on last season and how the club has coped with lockdown more generally? Well, um, yeah, I think any, like any of our many thousand supporters would tell you, it was really a game of two halves. Uh, you know, up pre Pre lockdown, we were doing very, very well on the field. I split it into two we're on the field and off the field. Being chairman isn't just about winning games, although that's a vital ingredient and what most of our followers are interested in. But, you know, we have to maintain a sustainable business model. We're on the field, we were doing very, very nicely. We were sitting in fourth position. We'd had some great performances from our younger lads coming through and our experienced heads. When the lockdown came, we got to the knockout stages of the European Champions Cup. So all was looking very, very good. And off the field, as I say, I split it down in two. We were proceeding very well. We were two years into a five-year plan to return to profitability and a sustainable model. And we were ahead of our budget for that year. We got cash in the bank. We'd just participated in the sale of the PRL. We, we own a 13th share of the league and that had been sold off to CVC or a portion of it, 27%. So we've got uh, the funds from that. We've got huge plans for further capital investment. Um, but now, um, you know, that's not the case. We've had to put a hold on it. And the, the second half, as again, as any supporter will remember, uh, we, our results were very, very disappointing. Uh, we had some unexpected losses. We went off the boil and we finished up in eighth position. So, And then off the field, of course, because no income, no income at all from any sort of match, match day, tickets, bars, the hospitality side, the conferencing events. We do a lot of conferencing and events at our stadium during the week, uh, Christmas parties. Uh, all those sort of things stopped. And so there was, but, but on the other hand, in terms of off the field challenges, we still had a lot of outgoings. We took some action on that, but nevertheless, we were paying out an awful lot of money every week, every month with little or no income. And so, you know, we had to take a lot of action there. We did. We, we were well supported. I, I, was, I was really proud of our people. Everybody pulled together and it was pretty painful. We had to reduce players' salaries and, and staff by 25% as a short measure. Uh, they accepted that. We cut right back on our plans for the five-year plan for any expenditure, no capital expenditure, and that's still the case, uh, to try and mitigate the losses. We've been able to re review the way we do things. We've had very, very few, few job losses. You count them on one hand, which is great because we're big employers around the town. We've done some excellent sponsorship deals. Travis Perkins, great employers in the town who have supported us with TP, great business. And indeed, we were picking up new sponsorship with cinch so that's brilliant you know to do that so it's not all doom and gloom and of course on the field if we flash forward we're now playing better we're still losing some games i wish we wouldn't uh if we could uh, address the last 10 minutes of a few games this season would be better than we, we are but we're in fifth in the league no mean achievement 
two weeks ago, two games ago, we put out 15, all 15 were English qualified players, which hasn't been achieved for many years in the, in the Premiership. 12 of them were from the, our own academy. And that's an excellent result. So, you know, you can just on your doorstep for anybody living in Northamptonshire is the opportunity to come and see world-class players every week in, week out from the opposition. But it's Saints. We've got people like Dan Bigger, Welsh international, Welsh star, Courtney Laws. We've got um, international players from the All Black, from Australia, all the home nations, England, Scotland, Wales, all out there on, on our pitch at Franklin's Gardens. And it's fantastic. So, you know, all of that's come through redressing what we do and spending time to, to work through COVID and come out stronger. And we've, we've strengthened our finances through our own resources. We, we, we've got major shareholders have been very supportive over the years, but we don't go back to them expecting them to have an open checkbook for us. We work at it internally and we've been well supported by the government, government loans and Sport England. We're in very close contact with them all the time. So, so all in all, it's been a very, very tough period. And let's hope we'll soon be getting back to a bit more near normal. Uh, you know, so I'm not uh, in any way despondent, although we've lived through some very tough times. That's really well put, John. I mean, in terms of your reflections on that, the 2013-14 season clearly remains a highlight with the European Challenge Cup and Premiership trophies. There's some important games coming up now, though, aren't there? Around 16 and 17, uh, towards the end of April, we've got the well, London Irish and the Leicester Tigers. There's going to be competition, I guess, for playoff places heating up. Both of those games are going to be crucial for the Saints, John. Yes, they are. You know, I mean, our ambition every year is to finish top. I think that's unlikely uh, without being defeatist. I think that's <laughs> unlikely this year. But if we can't finish top, we want to be in the top four, one or two, ideally, to get a home fixture, but top four. And if we can't do that, we want to be in top six. And if anything below that is a major disappointment, will be a major disappointment. And so, yes, we've got these games against Irish, which we look forward to. Um, but with the Tigers... I mean, I love playing the Tigers. You know, they're our neighbours and we get on well <laughs> yeah. with them. Uh, but, um, you know, it is a local derby and it won't be any different. Unfortunately, we didn't stage the one at Franklin's this, this year because of COVID related. Yeah. But uh, we're going to go down to Welford Road and give it a good crack. But as I say, I enjoy playing them. I, I, I wish them well, although... Every time we play them at whatever level, whenever it is, wherever it is, in whatever competition, I want to beat them. I want Saints to win. But, um, you know, they're good people to have alongside. And uh, th thankfully, they're playing pretty well at the minute as well. So, yeah, we've got some good battles and we've got, a, so, yeah, some interesting games coming up. Definitely. Community activities, John, I know that that's important for the club. You've got the Saints Academy, which is doing well. Things like wheelchair rugby, and even a dance school. Talking to some of the other chairmen around this, this idea of getting the youth back on to sporting fields of Northamptonshire, how important is it that grassroots activities get going again? Oh, it's vital, Nick. It's, it's, it's as important as the professional game because, you know, the, the, the grassroots um, is a feeder through to the professional game. All the other things we do with our um, Saints Foundation, with young lads there that, you know, getting people involved in rugby is, is fantastic. I've had a, a great time with rugby. I think it's a 
great sport. I like lots of other sports as well. And, uh, you know, I know, I know you, you will be featuring um, football and uh, cricket. It's great for the county to have all these teams on our doorstep. And I wish them all well. And I'm as interested in, in that, you know, in, in all sports. But, but rugby is the love of my life. And I do think it's great that, that you know, the, the friendships that are made throughout the, the culture the attitudes towards it. And at Saints, yeah, we do an awful lot, as you say, wheelchair rugby. We've got the academy for the, you know, the elite players, if you like, the young elite players. But we do an awful lot with the local clubs. And, and, and you know what? Everybody suffered through COVID. And it doesn't matter. I can feel sorry for myself because I'm, I'm older. And so, you know, you, you, you losing a year out of my life percentage-wise, is worse than, than it is for others who are a lot younger. But I feel sorry for students. I feel sorry for young kids. I feel sorry for the four or five-year-olds who can't go to a rugby club and play on a Sunday morning with a touch rugby. I've got grandkids who are desperate, you know, they're sort of early teens, desperate to get playing competitive sport and, and, and rugby particularly, but they play all sorts of sports like all youngsters should do. You know, and, and so I look at them and I think, blimey, they're really missing out. And, and you go every age group. But I, I do hope my own club, my, the one I was there at, I mentioned earlier, Kettering, you know, those clubhouses need to be active again and have people in them. And, yeah. and it, it's, it, you know, we need to get that back as soon as we can. And hopefully it will, will happen pretty soon. It's, it's, it's due to. So... Yeah, John, I, I absolutely agree 100%. And that is really your message with what I'm hearing from everybody, actually, on the sporting side of things. You know, let's just get get back let's get back out there and get going again as soon as possible. Look, John, many thanks. It's been great to talk to you and uh, good luck for the rest of the season. Thank you very nice to much, Nick. Very nice to talk to you. Well, welcome back to Shout to the Top. Uh, I'm here with Mandy Young. Uh, Mandy started an outdoor skate park at Rockingham Speedway in Corby in 2003 after her son John was attacked and had his skateboard stolen. From that, she founded Adrenaline Alley, now one of the biggest indoor skate parks in Europe. Uh, the park is a social enterprise with an educational space, a training club, a shop and a cafe, and over 50,000 young people have used the park, and that looks set to grow. Amanda was awarded an MBE in the November 2018 Queen's Birthday Honours, in addition to a Changemaker Special Achievement Award from the University of Northampton in 2020. Well, Mandy, welcome to the show. Hi, Nick. <laughs> Hi, Mandy. Um, I think the last time that we met was at the University Changemaker Ceremony just before lockdown. How do you feel about the fact that a former chicken packing factory was described recently as the best skate park outside the USA? Well, it's a pretty amazing story, to be honest, Nick. Um, you know, having a, a chicken factory that turns into that in Corby is, is phenomenal. And coming from a grassroots kind of organisation that was just there um, with the kids and myself, just kind of, you know, pushing the project forward, um, for it to become probably renowned as one of the best in the world, actually, now, and the biggest in the world, it's been a, a blood, sweat and tears project, but at the same time, amazingly rewarding to be able to you know carry out everything that we do at the facility. It is a great success story and so how many people working there at the moment? Do you have a, a, a significant staff? Yeah yeah we have 21 people employed some on a casual basis uh, obviously a cohort of full-time staff um, we have 45 volunteers 
who kind of dip in and dip out depending on what we're doing. And um, yeah, we have work experience. We have kids doing their Duke of Edinburgh awards. It, you know, it's just it's just a plethora of people from the community really that just come in and use the facility to gain the experience and the skills that they need. I guess some people may think uh, or may be thinking that skating and associated activities are not really a sport, but uh, let's put them straight because BMX, a big part of what you do, made its Olympic racing debut in Beijing in 2008 and has been an Olympic sporting feature ever since. So do you think we've got any future Olympic medalists here in Northamptonshire? Absolutely. They're all training at Adrenaline Alley, (laughs) (laughs) British Cycling Team GB. Um, that are training four or five times a week at Adrenaline Alley, even during lockdown. We've got all the the right measures in place to ensure that obviously they can keep developing and and hopefully bring home a medal from Tokyo. That's really exciting. So, I mean, BMX, as I said, the racing part of BMX has been in the Olympics. What about skating? Is that that's coming in this year, I believe? Is that true? Yeah, both, both the sports, there's BMX freestyle and skateboarding have both become Olympic sports um, this year. Skateboarding's already been accepted in the 2024 Olympics as well. So we're just waiting to hear about the BMX freestyle. But yeah, it's, it's a really, really exciting time for the sports. And obviously from Adrenaline Alley's point of view, that's going to you know, bring some investment into facilities for the future. And, you know, as I say, bring a gold medal home to Corby. Yeah, well, wouldn't that be, that would be a thing, wouldn't it? On a more personal note, man, it seems that your inspiration behind Adrenaline Alley comes from your son, John, who sadly died in 2010. Uh, How much of what you do, what you've achieved is a legacy to him? Everything. Um, I mean, John worked for Adrenaline Alley for three years. It was his vision that um, allowed me to find the strength, I suppose, to to carry on and drive this with the passion that I have. He was, you know, a very driven young person, even though he'd had a lifetime of illness. So, you know, when he got attacked, that was so devastating it was a case of you know what can we do to turn this negative situation into a positive so that's what John and I did with vision that he had to not just think about skateboarding but all the sports so to have then lost him into a time where we'd just been given another two buildings actually it was it was really hard and you know, it's been a, a great testament, really, the way the team at Adrenaline Alley have got through that, because it's not it wasn't just about me and the family and, and losing John. It, everybody knew John. Everybody worked with John. So it was a massive hit for everybody. But, yeah, it, you know, what we do is is all about what his vision was. And, you know, we've got to keep making sure that his legacy is, is to sit sustainable long term. Yeah, and that is absolutely that is happening, isn't it? I mean, you, you mentioned earlier about uh, getting on with things. I mean, we've heard a lot on previous episodes of this show, actually, about the importance of sport and exercise on health, uh, particularly mental health and, and well-being. So, Mandy, what's the current status at uh, Adrenaline Alley at the park? I mean, I guess you're closed now, but when are you going to reopen? Well, hopefully, Nick, we'll find out today, believe it or not. We've had no clarification on what date as an indoor venue um, that when we can open. We're hoping we'll hear today that it's April. Um, We just don't know, to be perfectly honest. Obviously, it's all down to government restrictions and then saying when indoor facilities can open. Um, You know, we've done everything we can. We've had zero um, track and trace. We've had zero infections at the park between staff or any customers that we're aware of. And, you know, that's amazing, really, considering that's been the case since the first lockdown in March 2020. 
so yeah all we can do is wait for the news today and see if we get some clarification on that yeah well good luck with that i mean it is massively frustrating for everybody for yourselves the staff who work there but also for the kids who use it because i mean i imagine they must be absolutely you know rearing rearing to go given that it's going to open successfully in, in the coming months Andy, what's your vision then for the next five or ten years I mean, at the moment, you can only look what's in front of us in terms of the pandemic. You know, it's it's been very hard. So that's going to slow the vision that we have to create the projects and do the projects that we would normally do um, are probably going to slow down over the next year or so. But looking sort of five years ahead, it's about supporting, you know, the Olympic riders first and foremost to make sure these sports um, become a top priority and make sure that the investment from the sports going into the Olympics, you know, comes down to all the UK skate parks and enable us basically to raise our game and, and, and lift, raise the limit and, and the bar for making sure that there's a pathway for all beginners to then aspire to elite level and potentially become an Olympic champion. Um, Mandy, thanks so much for joining us and good luck with it. Thank you. Well, for my next guest on Shout to the Top, we'll be leaving Northampton for the south of the county and talking with Stuart Pringle, the boss at Silverstone and home to the British Grand Prix. Stuart left the army in 2000 as a captain in the 1st Royal Tank Regiment and has worked in the motorsports industry ever since, first as secretary of the Vintage Sports Car Club, a short stint at Brands Hatch, then secretary of the British Racing Drivers Club at Silverstone, where since 2017, he's been managing director of Silverstone Circuits Limited. So Stuart, welcome to the show. Good morning, Nick. Uh, but before we begin, I think we should say a few words about the sad passing of, of Murray Walker, someone who, Stuart, you, you knew well, and coincidentally share an occupation as you were both tank commanders, albeit 50 years apart. It was desperately sad news to hear that uh, Murray had passed on to the, uh, the green fields beyond, as we say in the, uh, in the Royal Tank Regiment, but... Um... He was, he was 97 years old and he was um, mentally active right until the end, although his body did give out slightly in the latter years, but uh, he never lost his enthusiasm for the sport, his unbelievable knowledge, knowledge which he transferred to a whole generation of people. And really, you know, I think we have to recognise he was one of the most important characters in the sport in the last three or four decades, up there with Bernie Eccleston and Rod Dennis and Frank Williams. He was the man who promoted motorsport and made people like me, the enthusiast that I turned out to be. I, I absolutely can blame him for me getting into this for a living because uh, <laughs> my interest was fired as a young boy. I, Nigel Mansell's blowout in Adelaide, 1986. I'd got up very early in the morning to, to watch him. I mean, he was, you know, in many races before that, he was, he was an absolute legend. So great honour to get to know him. There's had some fantastic eulogies in the press and so will be, be sadly missed. Of course, Stuart, the British uh, Grand Prix Formula One race, the sporting highlight, not just in Northamptonshire, but globally, is scheduled for July the 18th this year. That's just three weeks after lockdown measures were due to be lifted on June 21st. So how confident are you that it will go ahead as planned? Ah, well, that's my great challenge at the moment, Nick, trying to um, work out whether we are planning for 10,000 people, which is the uh, number of people that can go into a sporting venue of our size after the 17th of May, as set down in the roadmap guidance, or whether we're back to our normal 130,000 on race day. And there's quite a difference when you're planning. It yeah. makes it very, very difficult. Uh, how many portaloos am I renting? How many security guards am I booking? How many hamburger stands have we got to have? Yeah. Uh, what are we doing about parking arrangements? Am I renting farmers' fields? Because if I don't need to park those cars, we're working closely with government and we've identified the roadmap back to full capacity along with other sports. 
Uh, I think also one has to look at the direction of travel of the vaccination programme. I can tell you the fans think it's on. They are buying tickets like nobody's business. I'm delighted. It's a great <laughs> help. It's what, clearly what the Prime Minister wants. He stood up and said that. Um, but of course, it's got to be safe, especially one where the 70,000 grandstand seats are spread over three and a half miles around the circuit. You know, it's not like the Saints or the Cobblers. Um, yep. which, you know, are very, very outdoor venues. But, we, you know, we're that, we're that on a 500-acre site. So um, motor racing and horse racing is different. And I, and I hope that there is a way that medical, the public health professionals to allow us to have our full, full capacity. I mean, I guess Silverstone has been hit harder than most, given that, A, you've talked about the volume of people needed for an event to be financially successful, but also lost revenue from exhibitions and conferences. So how have you coped then over the last 12 months? Well, you've just uh, put your finger, Nick, on, the, on, on precisely the double whammy that we suffered. Um, in 2020, we had no summer event season, uh, no spectators at all, all summer season. And then we would normally go into the winter, which is a conference. And uh, we couldn't do those either. So uh, it was a real sort of a, a, a real double hit. We have survived by virtue of uh, the furlough scheme. Uh, we've made extensive use of that. The business rates holiday. Has, we, I regret to say we've had to make um, one third of our staff redundant because uh, there was uncertainty of the furlough scheme continuing, if you recall, back in October. 2020, and it was very late change in the day. Um, we did come up with um, creative colleagues in the business came up with uh, the idea of a COVID compliant drive through Christmas light show. We put together in very, very short order uh, and ran for 24 nights in December, every night except uh, Christmas Day, uh, once we got going. And we put 10,000 people per night. We called it Lapland. Um, do you know if there's been one positive, Nick, that's come out of, uh, out of the whole? coronavirus pandemic it has been that it has forced us to think about how we can generate winter uh, sorry our money revenue in the winter which is traditionally our quietest period there is no none of our normal sports activity taking place and actually lapland will uh, become a permanent feature we are really excited about the planning we're doing for lapland 2021 with additions so you know that, that that is a positive because one of my big priorities has been to diversify silverstone away from sole reliance on formula one there's been uncertainty over the last few years certainly about the future of the grand prix at silverstone I mean, bernie eccleson's involvement is now replaced by the u.s company liberty media who Stuart, i think seem more committed to silverstone in the medium term yeah i hope so i mean certainly there was you know you didn't need to be the biggest student of formula one history to know that we were every five years or so back at the negotiating table arm wrestling with, with, with Bernie Eccleston um, who didn't have a particularly high regard for the British Racing Drivers Club the owners of Silverstone um, and made it made it known publicly Liberty do recognize what Silverstone brings to their world championship uh, they have publicly said there are four cornerstones of their championship Monaco Monza Spa and Silverstone the four European classics and, and actually, they also have, uh, we have proved to them that we've got a massive fan base in the UK. So those fans, Bernie never asks, asked the fans what they thought about it. It was all about the, the paddock. Uh, and that's fine. That's the way he did it. But Liberty are very much, they're an entertainment business. They're focused on fan satisfaction. And they ask all of their fans at all of their rounds um, what they thought of the event. And I'm delighted to say that for in 2018 and 2019, in the last two years that we had fans, at races, Silverstone has been the most popular race 
according to their fan satisfaction survey, with 90% of the respondents putting us in the top of five boxes and 9% in the second box. Education is a growing feature of the circuit. The University of Northampton is a proud sponsor of the Silverstone University Technical College for 14 to 18 year olds. But as you know, we've got plans to develop that uh, into university teaching, including higher level apprenticeships and research as well. I mean, given that you've already said, Stuart, one of your tasks uh, is to diversify Silverstone away from sole reliance on Formula One. I mean, do you see education in the broadest sense as, as, as a way to help achieve this? Absolutely. I'm extremely enthusiastic about the benefits that Silverstone UTC has brought uh, the wider Silverstone side, because, you know, there is a reason, Nick, why we have a world-class motorsport engineering, high-performance engineering sector in this country, uh, particularly in the county of Northamptonshire, but also uh, Buckinghamshire, Oxfordshire, this, this corridor known as Motorsport Valley. Um, and along this arc, there are 40,000 jobs in the supply chain. Eight of the 10 Formula One teams have a base in the UK and they are broadly within the stone's throw of Silverstone. Education and ensuring the next generation of engineers is essential. That preeminent position in the world uh, in this sector makes complete sense for the University of Northampton and other, other higher education partners and further education partners work with, with us, Silverstone and the BRDC, and indeed the wider Silverstone Park estate, where there are some wonderful tech companies, many of whom are crossing over from motorsport and high-performance engineering into uh, uh, science, space, aviation, those sort of things. And actually, if we could provide a campus, uh, a faculty at Silverstone, which allows people to take their educational journey from school age, uh, 14 when they joined Silverstone UTC through their GCSEs, their sixth form studies, and then on to their undergraduate studies, and who knows, possibly even further, um, and do so at Silverstone. They will have the, the motorsport in their veins. Everybody wins out of that. Everybody is a winner. Uh, so I really hope that we can make that happen. Absolutely. I think it's a tremendously exciting and um, it's really Great to hear that uh, you, we've got such strong, strong support from, from Silverstone and the circuits. The last question, Sir Lewis Hamilton will be racing and looking to win an unprecedented 8th World Championship uh, this July. Stuart, he's got to be in with a good chance, hasn't he? Well, you'd be a brave man to bet against him, the form he's in. I mean, you know, people talk, him, talk about him getting close to the end of his career. He's a mere 36 years old. Uh, he's fit as you like, um, and he's properly... Quick. So uh, combine that with the best team, um, and I say that from a statistical point of view, they have dominated Mercedes across rule changes recently. You know, he looks absolutely for man, very hard to beat. If he gets eight world championships, he's currently equaling Michael Schumacher's seven. Nobody thought uh, anyone would get to seven again. Um, I think that he, you know, that the, the smart money is on him achieving it this year. It is not certain. And the great thing about motorsport is that it is still unpredictable. And there are, there's an interesting new element that's being introduced as a trial this year, which is rather than qualifying on Saturday, there will be a sprint race at three races. And one of the selected races will be the British Grand Prix, provided the team to prove it. It is subject to a vote. So the winner of the sprint race will then go on pole position for the, for the main race on Sunday. So there was a little bit more jeopardy that's being introduced there. That's a challenge for Lewis. But frankly, I agree with you, Nick. It looks like he'll be the man to beat. Well, look, we wish him well. Uh, and we wish you well, Stuart, also at, uh, at Silverstone. And all the best for the, for the new season. Thanks very much for talking to us. Not at all. Thank you, Nick. We're going to change direction now and look at how sport is reported and broadcast in the media. A sport, of course, is a live event and broadcasting it is now a multi-billion pound global industry. 
So here to tell us more about the business side of sport media is my next guest, Paul McNamara. Paul is currently Senior Director and Executive Producer of Major Events at ITV. He's Project Director for the Six Nations Rugby, the Grand National, the Rugby World Cup, the Football World Cup and the FA Cup. Prior to ITV, where he's worked for 20 years, Paul was Executive Producer for the BBC's Match of the Day and, to spare his blushes, is a three-time BAFTA winner. So Paul, tell us, how did you get into this line of work in the first place? Oh, hi, Nick. I did a degree. I wanted to get away from where I lived. So my brother and sister had been off to a university. They were about 10 years older than me. And I realised that, that was a way of getting out from where, where, I, where I grew up. And that was what I set my mind to do. And I headed off. I ended up in Bristol doing uh, one of the very first uh, media studies degrees. And when it finished, it was quite, it was quite funny because when it finished, there was a lot of temptation. I remember people came around the campus, I think it might have been Cadbury's or something like that, and saying, uh, do, you want to, um, do, you want a, do you want a car and do you want to become a salesman? And, do you want to do? and a lot of people did, and I thought, I don't want to do that. And so I, got a temp- I managed to get a temporary job at the BBC, and I was um, loading vans in, film, in, a, in an area called Film Dispatch. Um, and you just basically used to you know, put film on vans and it would go off and get processed in different areas. And there was loads of young graduates in there at the time, and they all really wanted to make television, whether it would be you know, working be a cameraman or a grip or you know uh, working scenery or something so we all were like-minded lads really and I did a year in there and then while I was in the BBC my contract kept getting renewed every three months and of course once you're in you got you were able to access the internal job fair the newspaper it was called Ariel and a job came up as a, um, a floor assistant in news and current affairs and I went for it and I got the job and that was basically running scripts on the floor and looking after all the guests on breakfast time there used to be like 40 guests on breakfast time you know range from Audrey Hepburn to the prime minister of the day and it was my job to pick them up and say welcome them, greet them and run all the scripts and everything and I did that for a year and while I was there I became aware of sort of you know the sports department and I'd always been absolutely um, fanatical about sport all sports and I'd sort of grown up just watching it all and I'd never really even considered there was a job in it but then I started meeting some of these producers had come into the film dispatch area and I kept in touch with them and I realized there was a whole department and that they actually had young assistant producers it was roles for young assistant producers so I started trailing in my spare time what they were doing you know and they used to do the edits for match of the day or sports night which was a late night program grandstand and things like that and I just kept going in on my spare time and then some jobs came up and they took on nine people because there was this satellite company that was starting but it would never take off called Sky um, <laughs> and they took on these nine people and um, of course some people started leaving to go to Sky so there was four jobs at the end of it and I got one of those four jobs and there I stayed there then for 10 years and it was amazing you know one you know I think I joined in 89 1990 I was then sent out to the World Cup in Italy as the assistant producer making the the feature the little feature films that you get so four years earlier i'd been in a in a student digs with my mates watching on a portable tv with the wind blowing through the, the front door and four years later i was in rapello with the scotland squad doing the, the world cup so everything just changed and suddenly the bbc was taking me around the world to do you know athletics in tokyo and the olympics in australia and all around you know working on shows that i just dreamt of as a kid you know rugby special and the athletics and match of the day and grandstand and it was you know it was just a whirlwind of you know working with all these commentators that i listened to as a kid it's just incredible yeah. it um, sounds amazing but of course covid has changed that so i'm sure you've not been zooming around the world necessarily in the last no. 12 months or so so how's it been working and directing international tournaments during covid when COVID was really at its height, we had equipment brought into our homes and the presenters were at homes and I had a vision mixing panel that was brought into my home. 
We did some racing from here. You just had to hope that the kid next door didn't stick on his PlayStation because you know, it would wipe everything out. Generally, because we're seen as almost like key workers because providing sport to the nation while they're all everyone's locked down is seen as essential, um, we're allowed to go on site. So last night at Wembley, I was we were all on site. There was a bigger, you know, what's known as a big outside broadcast was 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 at Wembley last night. You know, this might sound a bit of an odd question, but when you're directing sport, I mean, what, <coughs> what do you actually do? Well. I mean, the greatest misconception is that everyone thinks that you're you're sitting in the stands watching it. I mean, you know, I, I basically, you know, I've been to some of the best car parks in the world, really, because that's <laughs> where the that's where the outside broadcast vehicles, those enormous trucks, are parked up. So the cameras are all, you know, last night we had 25 cameras that are in the ground, and then all the all the cables are brought back into this huge Arctic truck, and they're all put into this huge, massive vision mixer. So when we walk into my truck, there's a massive vision mixing console. Every button relates to a camera. Every monitor has its output up on the screen. And therefore, whatever button I press goes out at home. So if I press camera one, so I give every camera, every one of those 25 cameras a roll. And then as the game goes off, because you can't get a vision mixer to vision mix it for you, you have to cut it yourself. Because if you want to stop, you can't stop. You know, you, the only person you can stop in a, it really quickly is yourself. You can't say to someone, don't do that. And they've, they've already done it. So you then vision mix it yourself. And whatever you cut, camera one, camera two, camera three, reaction to the manager, close up, Etc. Etc. Goes out at home. So that's what that's what happens from there. The way that you do that and put it all together, that's the technical side of that. Is what you get. You can get a BAFTA for that, Paul, because you've won three. Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, sport has its own category at, at BAFTAs. Well, I won a multi-camera directing BAFTA for the FA Cup, which was up against the director of Anton Deck and the director of uh, Mrs. Brown Boys. But you know, wow. sport has its own categories where you know we won. The, we won for the Grand National and that beat other three or four things that were nominated from Sky or BBC or BT. Loads of things are put in, you know, and then the juries yeah. sit down and they, they go through. And it's not just the actual direction of the, the show. It's also all the content, all the features, how they commentate. You know, it's a, it's a big team effort. I suppose yeah. it's just unfortunate that everyone can't get one. It's just a, it is a massive team effort. Yeah. I mean, part of your job also is to look after the sets, the titles, the graphics of all ITV sport output. I think I'm, I'm old enough to remember World Cup Willy, which I think was just a bloke dressed up as a lion wandering around. I know things have moved on since then, but in terms of digital technology how do you think that will change sports broadcasting going forward well it's it's changing it all the time nick you know we're we're constantly using digital technology whether it be in our studios or in our titles you know i can remember when i was back at the bbc we were using virtual reality which is you know like a green screen almost yep. you know green screen projection much like people are doing with their zoom calls etc now but now we're doing much more of augmented reality uh, we use that a great deal i mean when we, we for example when we did the world cup in russia we went our studio in russia uh, the outlook of it was from St. Basil's, but we could only see half a St. Basil's. So what we did was we actually created in augmented reality the top of St. Basil's and then basically planted it on, on, the, on the real St. Basil's and then tracked it on the cameras so that every time the camera moved, the, basically the, the top of the lid didn't fall off. And we use, you know, we use that all the, all the time, augmented reality graphics we use all the time. Those are those massive big 3D graphics. We use it in title sequences. We use Unreal Engines on sets because it's like gaming technology. You know, you, the Euros, this, you know, they're in 12 countries. Well, we can kind of create 12 countries with, with Unreal Engines. They're so powerful. It's right. just massive, you know, gaming technology that you can use. So, and that's only going to get stronger and stronger, you know, and it's not technology that's taking five years to develop. Every year it gets better and better. Uh, at the University of Northampton, we've got courses in sports journalism. Uh, what's your advice for young people who want to get into the industry? Well, I think, you know, a lot of them have done the, have done the hard bit already. They've identified what they want to do. It's like I said earlier, is, you know, the temptation is not, not to get sidetracked. I mean, 
as you all know, you know, the work in life is a long in, innings, you know, and mm-hmm. there's nothing better than doing something that you really, really enjoy. You know, you can be tempted to go off and, uh, and do X and Y, but ultimately, if you get out of bed every day and thinking to yourself, this is not, this is not work, this is actual pleasure, then that's half the trick. I mean, I've got, I've got friends who earn, you know, 10 times more than me, but are they particularly happy? No, mm-hmm. because they're having to justify their lifestyle constantly and they're in this rat race and they can't get out of it. So if you can work in something that you really, really are passionate about and it's creative and you enjoy it, and the squeaky hinge gets the oil. Yeah. If you keep, if you want to do it, if you, I know it's an old cliche, but if you want to do it, there's plenty of opportunity out there. It's not like, you know, in the old days when there was just, you know, BBC and ICV. There's thousands of companies, there's thousands of digital platforms, you know, get some experience under your belt, be a squeaky hinge, call people up, pester them. If you want to do it, you can make it happen. Hello, Mark, I know that you're a Saints fan, that's Southampton Football Club, not to be confused with Saints Rugby, but in another overlap with Northampton, which is famous for leather manufacturing, apparently you used to sell genuine leather file factors. Absolutely. Quality gear, Nick, you know, quality, quality stuff. Yeah, I always liked, I always liked a bit of Del Boy on the side when I was, um, when I was growing up. The only problem with the whole entrepreneurial thing is I've still got about seven of them upstairs. <laughs> you still got some stock left over from the 70s. Absolutely, yeah. This time <laughs> next year, I could be a millionaire. Thanks for taking time out of a busy schedule, Paul, and uh, we look forward to watching the England games over the next few weeks. Thank you. Great stuff. Thanks, Nick. Welcome to my final guest on Shout to the Top, Kate Williams, another award-winning broadcaster with wide experience in both radio and television. During her 22 years at the BBC, she presented on BBC Radio 4 and 5 Live and the World Service. As a journalism trainer, she helped devise and set up the BBC's in-house journalism training scheme that new journalists must do through the Corporation's College of Journalism. Kate joined the University of Northampton in December 2012 as a senior lecturer in journalism and broadcast journalism and was appointed deputy dean in the Faculty of Arts, Science and Technology in October 2016. And Kate continues to have strong links with the industry. Well, Kate, welcome. Uh, You've got a great practitioner track record that adds real value to the sports journalism courses here at Northampton. We've heard from Paul McNamara just now about his route into the industry. So what kind of things can students expect when they come to study with us here at Northampton? Well, the great thing, Nick, about being the Deputy Dean of the Faculty is that it's not just sports journalism we've got. We've got sports coaching, sport and exercise science, sport rehabilitation and conditioning, sport business and leadership. So there's something for anyone who is passionate and interested in sport, whether you're a practitioner who's out there kicking a ball every Saturday or someone who wants to study the science of it or, like me, someone who loves watching it and loves kind of reporting on it. And um, that's what I did when I came to the university. I set up the journalism degree and then a couple of years later I thought we really need a sports journalism degree uh, because of where we are geographically you know we've got rugby football cricket and of course we've also got Silverstone um, and it was it was just a no-brainer to me. Obviously passionate excited about sports so tell us a bit about the early Kate I mean how did you get into sport into journalism and then at some stage you must have made the shift into university uh, what what drove that decision? So I can never remember a time where I didn't want to be a journalist I, I've just always been really interested in news uh, in watching it and then of course in, in reporting it um, so I went off to university I actually did a history degree but then did a postgraduate in broadcast journalism to get a diploma at the time I was going out with someone who lived in Norfolk and the course leader kind of said to me oh well you, there's no very few jobs down in Norfolk you'll not get a job in journalism in Norfolk so I kind of thought right I'll show you so I went and did a placement at BBC Radio Norfolk and uh, they offered me a job 
Uh, so that was it I got into the BBC (laughs) and I kind of stayed there for over 20 years Um, BBC Norfolk then I came to BBC Northampton uh, where I moved on from BBC Northampton but never left the county continued living just outside Northampton Uh, and then when Radio 5 Live set up they were looking for regional journalists who could report from a specific region in my case East Anglia so I applied for that job and I got it and bizarrely I'd been trying to make the the break from local radio to national radio without much luck I don't know whether my backgrounds because I'm from Morecambe I'd gone to a polytechnic at the time the BBC was quite uh, white male Oxbridge um, but Five Live was this new vibrant you know cheerful chatty station which of course was news and sport and it just played perfectly to what I wanted to do so report on breaking news stories you know one evening I could be in Chelmsford the next morning I could be in Kings Lynn from there I went down to London and started co-presenting Five Live Sport on Five Um, I was a news voice in a sports program but it was perfect because you know I was being paid to sit in a studio and obviously report the news but also watch football or watch tennis and you know sometimes by reading the news and I'd look up from reading the news I remember it so clearly um, and I hadn't heard them come in because I've been concentrating on reading the news and Bobby Robson and um, Seb Coe were sitting opposite me waiting for me to finish the news. So I mean that that, this is the sort of stories the passion that also but also the the connectivity into industry that I think our students really enjoy when they come here to study with us on on these courses. So definitely what, what made you then jump into university Kate sorry what made you then do that final switch to to come to work with us now so the bbc set up the college of journalism uh which all new journalists joining the bbc uh had to go on a course a week-long course learning about the bbc values and ethics uh and you know the the thinking behind how the bbc does its journalism impartiality and i realized that i really loved talking at tips techniques training uh the next generation of journalists I kind of felt like I'd reached a stage where I'd been there, I'd done that, you know, I'd worked on some amazing national and international news stories, but giving something back and training journalists was the right fit for me and the next stage for me. So BBC Radio 5 Live moved up to Manchester and I thought, right, if I don't leave the BBC now, I'll never know what else there is out there. Um, I left Uh, I'm living in Northampton. I saw a job advertised at the University of Northampton and I applied for it and I was very, very lucky to get it because at the time they were specifically looking for someone to set up a broadcast journalism degree. Um, So I came and uh, along with uh, the deputy subject leader now of the department, Hilary Scott, we wrote a new degree called multimedia journalism, specifically for radio, telly and and online and, you know, digital print. And then from that went into doing the the sports journalism degree as well. And And it all came about just from the fact that I had, it sounds big head and it's not meant to, but I had so much experience and I just wanted to share it all because I just love talking about it and teaching. I mean, this morning I've been marking some final year projects from our journalism uh, students and I, I still love doing that listening to what they're doing giving them hints and tips you know and, and just marking and passing on my knowledge to them if I can. Okay you said previously about uh, Northampton being perhaps unusual uh, in England and having three national slash international sporting teams all within a few miles of each other football rugby cricket uh, and the university has got a great relationship with all of them from use of our training facilities through to sponsorship and student placements so how important is it that we maintain good relationships with our sporting neighbours? Oh, it's vital. I mean, I hope they get something out of us and our students as much as we get something out of them. So 
talking specifically, um, you know, from the multimedia sports journalism degree, you know, the chance for our students to go down to the cobblers or go down to the Saints or the cricket and report on it and write up the matches and the games. It's top level sport. I mean, some people may moan about the cobbler, but I'm passionate because I'm a season ticket holder with, with the cobblers. And I think for them to get that type of experience at that level is really, really good for them. Shifting the subject a bit in a slightly different direction, I was reading, there's an interesting Sports England report from 2018-19 on diversity on sporting boards in particular. I was interested to see, perhaps not surprised, that you're more likely to have gone to a private school or Oxbridge if you're a board member of sports teams and the pub than the population at large. What more could the university be doing to include people in sport more widely, for example, those with disabilities or from underrepresented groups? The best thing about our university, which I'm passionate about, is wide, our widening access. The fact that people that have not been to university, that no one in their families have, think that they can do a degree and that we can help them. And we do. I really hope that we do help them. So we are widening access and hopefully that will filter through to widening representation. So hopefully that will filter through to wider representation. I mean, obviously for me, it is women in sport. I was at the BBC at a time when Jackie Oatley became the first woman to commentate on Match of the Day. And the amount of media coverage there was because it was so rare was unbelievable. And yet now there's far more women reporting on sport. And as a result of more women reporting on sport, I definitely think Think that more women's sport is covered in, in mainstream you know, like the women's football world cup and the amount yeah. of coverage that got recently yeah. were compared to what it got 10 or 15 years ago and i think as we have more people studying sport you know doing our degrees and going out and working in the industry then hopefully it will change but you're absolutely right you know having board members drawn from a very narrow cohort of private schools in Oxbridge is not the way to represent the vast majority in society who play watch or enjoy sport. I agree but I should actually say that doesn't apply to our three Northampton based certainly the chairman they all have quite diverse backgrounds and come from not that environment that we just described. Kate, finally, what have you been doing during lockdown other than teaching and marking? <laughs> Do you know what? The, I was thinking about this recently because the very first lockdown at last March, I really struggled by the fact there was no sport on. There was nothing to watch. And there, there wasn't that kind of point of reference where, you know, I'm ribbing my brother-in-law about how Derby are doing or, you know, talking to my brother in Germany who passionately follows Morecambe Football Club. So in lockdown now, luckily we can watch a lot of sport um i've been doing a lot of walking um running uh oh i've trodden paths around my village so much uh and i've been watching a lot of i, I started watching spooks from the start <laughs> i'd never wow. watched spooks i watched the whole of spooks there's a lot of episodes of spooks um i think like everyone just trying to keep myself busy walking and watching telly and working yeah, well, look, I think there's light at the end of the tunnel. What was great talking to some of the uh, the sporting folk on on the show is that events are being planned, some really exciting events uh, in Northampton and Northamptonshire over the summer. So I think we can look forward to something a bit special. I hope so anyway. I thanks definitely for- hope so. Well, there's the fantastic Kate Williams. Kate, thanks very much for chatting to us here on Shout to the Top. And here's to a bumper summer of sport. Well, whatever your favourite sport, whether it's football, rugby, cricket, motor racing, skateboarding or something else, we wish all of our teams and sports people well in what promises to be a fantastic lineup of summer events here in Northamptonshire and beyond. 
both on the field and behind the cameras. Well, thank you to my contributors. Uh, the theme next month is the arts, and I'm joined by special guest Joe Gordon, Chief Executive at the Roland Derngate, the core at Corby Cube, and Northampton Filmhouse. So remember, wherever you are in the UK or in the South Pacific, and for all sports fans who've waited so patiently during lockdown, well, let me tell you, when those gates open... <laughs>